Book One, Chapter Four of The Mystery of the Hasty Arrow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Strategic Move, Part Two. As the action had now shifted to the upper floor, a diagram of the second story is now in order. As you will see, a straight glimpse is given down either gallery from the arches opening into the broad corridor into which Mr. Grice had stepped on leaving the central staircase. He had, therefore, only to choose which of the two would better repay his immediate investigation. He decided on the northern one, which, you will remember, was the one holding the tapestry, since to find anybody there, no matter whom, would certainly settle the identity of the person responsible for that flying arrow. For, as all conceded, too little time had elapsed between its delivery and the discovery of the victim for the quickest possible attempt at escape to have carried the concealer of the bow very far from the spot where he had thrown it. It was possible, just possible, that he might got as far as one of the four large rooms opening into the corridor stretching across the front, but that he was not in the gallery itself, Mr. Grice soon convinced himself, by a rapid walk through its entire length. That he did not follow up this move, by an immediate searching of the rooms I have mentioned, was owing to a wish he had to satisfy himself on another point first. What was this point? In passing along the rear, on his way to this gallery, he had noticed the narrow staircase opening not a dozen feet away to his left. This undoubtedly led down to the side entrance. If by any chance the user of the bow had fled to the rear instead of to the front, he would be found somewhere on the staircase, for he never could have gotten to the bottom before the cry of, Close the doors, let no man out, rendered his chance of immediate exit unavailable. So Mr. Grice retraced his steps, and barely stopping to note the boy eyeing him with eager glances from the doorway of room A, he approached the iron balustrade, guarding the small staircase, and cautiously looked over. A man was there, a man going down, not coming up, and this man, as he soon saw from his face and uniform, was Corey, the attendant. So that is where you were, he called down, as he beckoned the man up. As near as I can remember, I was on my way in search of Mr. Jewett, for whom I had a message, and had got as far as you saw me when I heard a cry of pain from somewhere in the gallery. This naturally quickened my steps, and I was up and on this floor in a jiffy. Did you notice, as you stepped from the landing, whether the boy staring at us from the doorway over there was facing just as we see him now? He was. I remember his attitude perfectly. Coming out of the door? Not going in? Sure, he was on the run. He had heard the cry, too. And followed you into the gallery? Preceded me. He was on the scene almost as soon as the man who stepped in from the adjoining section. I see, and this man? 
was well within my view from the minute I entered the first arch. He seemed more bewildered than frightened, till he had passed the communicating arch and nearly stumbled over the body of the girl, shot down almost at his elbow. And yourself? I knew by his look that something dreadful had happened, and when I saw what it was, I didn't think of anything better to do than to order the doors shut. On your own initiative, where was the curator? Not far, it seems, but he gets awfully absorbed in whatever he is doing, and there was no time to lose. Someone had shot that arrow, and someone who might escape. Mr. Grice never allowed himself, or very rarely, to look at anyone full and square in the face, yet he always seemed to form an instant opinion of whomever he talked with. Perhaps he had already gauged this man, and not unfavorably, for he showed not the slightest distrust as he remarked, quite frankly, You must have had some suspicion of foul play, even then, to act in so expeditious a manner. I don't know what my suspicions were. I simply followed my first impulse. I don't think it was a bad one, do you, sir? Far from it. But enough of that. Do you think... Here he drew Corey into the gallery, out of earshot of the boy who was watching them with all the curiosity of his fourteen years. That this lad could have stolen from where we are standing now to the door where you first saw him during the time you were making your rush up the stairs. Boys of his age are mighty quick, and... I know it, sir, and I see what you mean. But even if he had been able to do this, which I very much doubt, no boy of his age could have strung that bow, or had he found it strung, have shot an arrow from it with force enough to kill. Only a hand accustomed to its use could handle a bow like that with any success. You know the bow, then? Saw it nearer than you said, possibly handled it? No, sir, but I know it's kind and have handled many of them. In this building? Yes, sir, and in other museums where I have been. I have arranged and rearranged Indian exhibits for years. Then you think that the bow we saw behind the tapestry is an Indian one? Without question. The detective nodded and left him. One word with the boy, and he would feel free to go elsewhere. It proved to be an amusing one. The boy, for all his enthusiasm as a scout, proved to be so hungry that he was actually doleful. More than that, he had a ticket for the afternoon's ball game in his pocket and feared that he would not be let out in time to see it. He therefore was quick with his answers, which certainly were ingenuous enough. He had been looking at the model of a ship, which could be seen through an open door, when he heard a woman cry out, as if hurt, from somewhere down the gallery. He was running to see what it meant when a man came along, who seemed in as great a hurry as himself. But he got there first, and so on and on, corroborating Corey's story in every particular. He was so honest, Mr. Grice had been at great pains to trip him up in one of his statements and had openly failed, and yet 
So anxious for the detective to notice the ticket to the ball game, which he held in one hand, that the old man took pity on him, and calling an officer, ordered him to let the boy out. A concession to youth and innocence, he was almost ready to regret when a woman of uncertain years and irate mien attacked him from the doorway he had just left with a loud remark, If you let him go, you can let me go, too. I was in this room at the same time he was, and know no more about what happened over there than the dead. I have an appointment downtown of great importance. I shall miss it if you don't let me go at once. It is of greater importance that the right which this dead girl's friends have to know by whose careless hand the arrow killing her was shot. And without waiting for a reply, which was not readily forthcoming, Mr. Grice handed her over to Corey with an injunction to see that she was given a comfortable seat below and proceeded to finish up this portion of the building by a search through the three great rooms extending along the rear. He found them all empty and without a clue of any kind, and satisfied that his real work lay in front, he returned thither, and with as much expedition as old age and rheumatism would admit. Why, in doing so, he went for the third time through the gallery, instead of through rooms J, H, and I, he did not stop to inquire, though afterward he asked the question of himself more than once. Had he taken this latter course, he might not have missed. But that will come later. What we have to do now is to accompany him to the front of the building, where matters of importance undoubtedly await him. Had he noted in his previous passage to and fro that the young man who had been nearest to the tragedy was in his place before the cases of coins in Section 1. This time he noted something more. The young man was in the self-same spot, but during this brief interval of waiting, the passion he evidently cherished for numismatics had reasserted itself, and he now stood with his eyes bent as eagerly upon the display of coins over which he hung, as if no shaft of death had crossed the space without, and no young body lay in piteous quiet beyond the separating partition. It was an exhibition of one of the most curious traits of human nature, and Mr. Grice would undoubtedly have expended a few cynical thoughts upon it if, upon entering the broad front corridor, which he had hitherto avoided, he had not run upon Sweetwater, pointing in a meaning way toward two huge cases, which, stacked with medieval arms, occupied one of the corners. Odd couple over there, he whispered, as the older detective paused to listen. Been watching them for the last five minutes. They pretend to be looking at some old armor, but they are mighty uneasy and just keep glancing up at the window overhead as if they would like to jump out. Mr. Grice indulged in one of his characteristic exclamations. This was the couple whose queer actions he had noticed on the staircase. I'll have a talk with them presently. Anyone in the rooms opposite? 
Yes, the curator. He's in room A, where there are a lot of engravings waiting to be hung. I guess he was pretty well up to his neck in business when that fellow Corey set up his shout. And have you noticed that he's a bit deaf? Which is the reason, perhaps, why he was not sooner on the scene. No, I hadn't noticed. Anyone else at this end? Only the young couple I speak of. Mr. Grice gave them a second look. They were, by many paces, farther from the pedestal from behind, which the bow had been flung back of the tapestry, than would quite fit in with the theory he had formed, and by means of which he hoped to single out the person who had sent this deadly arrow. But then, under the stress of fear, people can move very swiftly, and besides, what guarantee did he have that these poor frightened creatures had located themselves with all the honesty the occasion demanded? According to Sweetwater, there was nobody sufficiently near to notice where they had been at the critical instant, or where they were now. The student's back was toward them, and the curator quite out of sight, behind a close-shut door. With his doubt in his mind, Mr. Grice started to approach the couple. As he did so, he observed another curious fact concerning them. They were neither of them in the place natural to people interested in the contents of the great cases which they had crossed the hall to examine. Instead of standing where a full view of these cases could be had, they had withdrawn so far behind them that they presented the appearance of persons in hiding. Yet as he drew nearer and noted their youth and countrified appearance, Mr. Grice was careful to assume his most benign deportment so as to modulate his voice as to call up the pink into the young woman's cheek and the deep red into the man's. What Mr. Grice said was this, You are interested, I see, in this show of old armor. I don't wonder. It is very curious. Is this your first visit to the museum? The man nodded. The woman lowered her head. Both were self-conscious to a point painful to see. It is a pity your first visit should be spoiled by anything so dreadful as the accidental death of this young girl. It seems to have frightened you both very much. Yes, muttered the man. We never saw anybody hurt before. Did you know the young lady? Oh, no, oh, no, they both hastened to cry out in a confused jumble, after which the man added, We're from up the river. We don't know anybody in this big town. As he spoke, he began to edge away from the wall, the girl following. Wait, smiled the detective. You are getting out of place. You were looking at the armor when you first heard the hubbub over there. Both were silent. What were you looking at? I was looking at her, and her was looking at me, stammered the man. We were... We were talking together here. We didn't notice. Just married, huh? Yesterday noon, sir. How... how did you know? I didn't know. I only guessed, and I think I can guess something else. 
what your reason was for stealing into this dark corner. It was the man who now looked down, and the woman who looked up. In a pinch of this kind, it is the woman who is the more courageous. He was a kissing of me, sir, she whispered, in a frank but shamefaced way. There was no harm in that, was there? We're so fond of one another, and how could we know that anyone was dying so near? No, there was no harm, Mr. Grice reluctantly admitted. Caught in an absurdity amusing enough in its way, he would certainly, under less strenuous circumstances, have rather enjoyed his own humiliation. But the occasion was too serious, and his part in it too pronounced for him to take any pleasure in this misadventure. In the prosecution of so daring a scheme for locating witnesses, if not of discovering the actual user of the bow, it would not do to fail. He must find the man he sought. If the curator but one glance into the room, where that gentleman stood amid a litter of prints, satisfied him that Sweetwater was right as to the impossibility of getting any information from this quarter. Nor could he hope, remembering what he himself had seen, that he would succeed any better with the last person now remaining on this floor, the young man busy with the coins in number one that he was to be so fortunate as to lay an immediate hand on the person who had shot the fatal arrow was no longer regarded by him as among the possibilities. Whoever this person was, he had found a way of escape which rendered him, for the time being, safe from discovery. But there was another possible miscalculation which he felt it his duty to recognize before he proceeded further in his difficult task. The bow found back of the tapestry had every appearance of being the one used for the delivery of the arrow. But was it? Might it not, in some strange and unaccountable way, have been flung there previous to the present event, and by some hand no longer in the building? Such coincidences have been known, and while, as a rule, this old and experienced detective put little confidence in coincidences of any kind. He had but one thought in mind in approaching this final witness, which was to get from him some acknowledgment of having seen, on or about the time of the accident, a movement in the tapestry behind which the bow lay concealed. If once this fact could be established, there could be no further question as to the direct connection between the bow there found and the present crime. But Mr. Grice might have spared his pains so far as this young man was concerned. He had been so engrossed in his search for a particularly rare coin that he had had no eyes for anything beyond. Besides, he was abnormally nearsighted not being able, even with his glasses, to distinguish faces at any distance, much less a movement in a piece of tapestry. All of this was discouraging, even if anticipated, but there were still the people below, some one of whom might have seen what this man had not. He would go down to them now, 
but by a course which would incidentally enlighten him in regard to another matter about which he had some doubts. In his goings to and fro through the hall, he had passed the open door of room H and noted how easily a direct flight could be made through it and rooms I and J to the small staircase running down at the rear. Whether or not this explained the absence of anyone on this floor who, by the utmost stretch of imagination, could be held responsible for the accident which had occurred there, he felt it incumbent upon him to see in how short a time the escape he still believed in could be made through these rooms. Timing his steps from the pedestal nearest this end, he found that even at his slow pace it took but three minutes for him to reach the arcade leading into the court from the foot of the staircase. A man conscious of wrong and eager to escape would do it in less, and if, as possibly happened, he had to wait in the doorway of room J till Corey and the boy had cleared the way for him by their joint run into the farther gallery, he would still have time to be well on his way to the lower floor before the cry went up, which shut off all further egress. Relieved, if not contented with the prospect this gave of a new clue to his problem, he re-entered the court and was preparing to renew his investigations when the arrival of the coroner put a temporary end to his efforts as well as to the impatience of the so-called pawns, who were now allowed, one and all, to leave their posts. End of Part 2 of Chapter 4